Second Peter, chapter three, beginning in verse 10, it says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. In verse 11, it says, therefore, and you'll remember that whenever you find the word therefore in the Bible, it's appropriate for you to ask and answer the question. What is it there for? The earth and everything in it will one day be destroyed by fire. What can you do about that? Nothing. The universe will melt in unimaginable heat. There's nothing you're going to be able to do about that. Jesus will return. In one sense, you do have something to do with that. In one sense... Your attitude towards your belief in or your skepticism towards the coming of Jesus will not hurry Jesus. It will not delay the second coming of Jesus. But the Bible gives the believer permission to have an eager expectation and hope when we think about and study the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, you also have to remember the context in which this is being communicated. This isn't intended to humiliate you or frighten you or scare you. Remember, Peter calls the reader beloved four times in chapter three. Beloved, be mindful, verses one and two. Beloved, be not ignorant, verse eight. Beloved, be diligent in verse 14. Beloved. Beware, verse 17. There's a reason why you're called beloved over and over and over again. It's because you are. You're loved and you're thought about. In this chapter, Peter reminds us that God's word is sure in verses 1 through 4. God's work is consistent in verse 5 and 7. God's will is merciful, verses 8 through 10. Now we're encouraged to be diligent in verses 11 through 18. We're to be diligent to live holy and godly lives in verses 11 through 14. We're to be diligent about sharing the gospel message with the lost in verses 15 and 16. We're to be diligent to grow spiritually in verses 17 and 18. In the opening of his letter, Peter wrote, giving all diligence... Add to your faith in chapter one, verse five, 
Give diligence to make your calling and election sure. Second Peter chapter one, verse 10. Moreover, I will endeavor. That was his way of saying, I will be diligent that you may be able. Second Peter chapter one, verse 15. Or it was Peter's way of saying, I will be diligent so that you can be diligent. That's what he's saying. I know people love to argue and debate in times theology. If I'm going to be honest with you, I love to argue and debate in times theology. I've devoted a great deal of my adult life studying dispensational premillennialism and historical premillennialism and postmillennialism and partial preterism and all millennialism. These are all just fancy words of saying we know that Jesus is going to come back. Is Jesus going to come back before uh, the second coming in the sense of will there be a time of judgment? Will there be a time of peace followed by a judgment? What exactly is the chronology? I want to know the chronology. And guess what? I want to know the chronology, too. But Peter doesn't give us an end times chronology. Peter chooses rather to focus on our attitude and our conduct in light of the coming of Jesus and the end of all things. In other words, what does it mean to prepare for Christ's return? And Peter doesn't say Jesus will return and he will say, behold, why didn't you get the end times chronology right? He's going to examine your heart. In other words, the point seems to be that Peter is making is that the preparation for Christ's return includes four qualities that should mark every believer who lives for Jesus and loves Jesus and longs for the return of Jesus. Peter speaks of an eager expectation and a purposeful service and a peaceful spirit and moral integrity. He seems to be way more concerned about your heart, your attitude in your heart, your conduct and your heart. All Bible believing Christians believe that Jesus will return. All Christians believe that faith in Christ's return should motivate us to embrace godly living. Warren Wearsby uses the example of one pastor who said, I've moved off the planning committee and I've now joined the welcoming committee. In other words, there's a plan and there's a welcome. And I'm looking forward to him coming. I'm more than happy to hear about your views of the end times. But will be far more impressive to me is to know how you're living and loving and longing in light of Jesus' soon return. And so in verse 11, it says, since all these things will be dissolved, what things? This means the universe in which you're living in, the chair that you're sitting on, the ceiling that you see, the ground below you, this planet and everything in it will dissolve. What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Peter writes about our holy conduct and godly behavior. And so, again, right away, he goes for your heart. Someone once described a Christ, a Christ centered life like a good watch, a good watch 
has an open face and busy hands, is pure gold and full of good works. I think good timing as well. It really does depend on perspective. Someone once said, two men looked out from prison bars. One saw mud and the other stars. Are you looking down? Are you looking up? And because he uses the expression, what manner of persons ought we to be? That word manner is very interesting in the original language. It means exotic. It means foreign. It literally has the idea of being out of this world. We're left with the impression that the Christian's behavior and conduct is profoundly and remarkably different from the unbelieving world. Earlier, Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, we have escaped the corruption that is in this world. And because you've escaped the corruption in this world, your thinking and your speaking and your living is decidedly different, almost foreign. Sometimes when we observe the Amish, we are startled. Some of you are familiar with the Amish. This is a group of people who are descendants of German believers who came from Europe and they settled in the Pennsylvania area and they adopted dress from 200 years earlier. They sort of abandoned a modern technology. But when he's talking about foreign, he's not talking about our reluctance to speak differently or dress differently or to embrace modern technology. That all may seem foreign. Peter's not speaking about the way you dress or the way you talk or your, the presence or the absence of technology. Can you imagine following Peter on Twitter? Hey, Peter goes, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Dude, did you see that? I was watching a ridiculous program last night. Piers Morgan, he's the new guy who is now filling in for Larry King and Larry King Live. And he was interviewing, of all people, the Kardashian sisters. Now, you laugh, but see, I don't know the Kardashian sisters. I don't even know why they're famous. I have no idea who they are or what they do or why they're important. And Piers Morgan says, more people follow you than Barack Obama. Isn't it surprising to you that millions more people follow you than Barack Obama? Or she, he said something like, no, I think Barack Obama's slightly ahead of you. And she goes, no, no, I, I went by him last week. I, I've got 2.9 million people following me on Twitter. And I'm going, and why is that? What is there about you that make people want to know about what kind of peanut butter you're eating? I mean, help me understand why this is even important. The, what Peter is basically talking about, he isn't talking about how dramatically different you are, like I said, in the sense of the externals, but he's drawing attention to the fact that you believe differently and because you believe differently, you behave differently. And the word is holy conduct and godliness. And by the way, the word holy doesn't mean that you're better than everybody else. 
It means you separate or you cut off. Some of you, as a matter of fact, have a Bible. And on the cover of your Bible, you have two words. It says holy Bible. And there's a reason why the Bible is called holy, because it's not like any other book. It is separate from and distinct from every other book. It makes claims that no other book claims. And so that's the idea. The Jewish people were called a holy nation because they were to separate themselves from the Gentiles and they were to devote themselves to the lordship of God. We as Christians are called a holy nation. Remember earlier, Peter says you are a holy nation and a holy priesthood. And so he uses that same term to describe not simply our conduct as the absence of bad behavior, but a commitment to knowing, loving, following, serving Christ. As a matter of fact, the word translated godliness could also be translated piety. Now, you may not know the word godliness and you may not know the word piety. So I guess I'm going to have to translate that word as well. It was a word that was used to describe a person whose life was devoted to pleasing God. That's pretty easy, isn't it? Now, think about that for just a moment. Because your life either consists of things that you do that please God in the things that you do that do not please God. And so when Peter says this, he goes, guess what? You now have permission. You now have the ability. You now have the privilege to devote your life to pleasing the Lord. Clearly, it's possible to live a life cut off from sin and sinners, but not live a positional place of enjoying God personally. And so in the Greek world, the Greek pagan, the Greek unbeliever would use this word to describe someone who paid homage and respect to the gods and the things the gods were in charge of or cared for. But I think that Peter here means the kind of respect for Jesus and the things of Jesus that made John the Baptist say he must increase and I must decrease in John chapter three, verse 30. He's not talking about being religious and he's not talking even about being spiritual. He's talking about things that you do and say and are. That promote Christ. And demote yourself. And so that's the idea. And Peter's not alone among the New Testament writers who teach that this eager expectation of how the Lord Jesus's return is supposed to motivate us to live lives of purity. And guess what? Each and every one of you fall. In the first service, I said two ways prepared or unprepared, but in the second service, I'm going to say three ways. Prepared, mostly prepared, and not prepared at all. And the reason why I've sort of amended it is because I think that some of you are in the process of preparation. But there are things, issues, that you need to deal with. So 
we accelerate the return of the Lord Jesus by living lives of holiness and godliness. And I'm going to suggest to you that here, holiness means a life dedicated to the Lord God. And personal piety or godliness means living a life characterized by prayer and worship and sharing God's love and sharing Christ's message. When Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, he told the Jewish people in Acts chapter three, verse 19, he said, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that the times of refreshing may come from the Lord, that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you. Even Jesus, he must remain in heaven until Until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through the holy prophets. So Peter's first message out of the chute is Jesus lived. He died. He rose from the dead. He's ascended into heaven and he's in heaven right now. And he's going to come back. And so between the time that he comes back and you're here, there's some things that I need you to think about. By the way, those of you who are familiar with Peter, you follow him on Twitter. Did he live a life of perfection? Was there a time in Galatians when Paul the Apostle had to confront him because of his own personal hypocrisy? Have each and every one of you also been awakened who follow the Lord Jesus Christ to the reality that when I accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior, there's still stuff inside of me that needs to be worked out. Were you naive to think that when you accepted Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, that you would never, ever sin again? And then you were confronted with the cruel reality that your heart was in a process of being purged and cleansed and purged and cleansed and purged and cleansed. Helder Camera wrote, quote, being holy means getting up immediately every time you fall with humility and joy. It doesn't mean never falling into sin. It means being able to say, yes, Lord, I have fallen a thousand times, but thank you that I've gotten up one thousand and one times by your Holy Spirit and with your help. Remember what we've already learned in Second in Peter, that there are pigs and they go back to the mud There are dogs and they return to the vomit, but there are also sheep. And the place where you find sheep is in the shepherd's arms. And repentance is way more than just an admission of guilt. It's not just simply being sorry for what you've done. It's not sorrow without change or change without sorrow. It is sorrow with an intent to change. Repentance is unconditional surrender. Repentance is kneeling down on the inside. In the Bible, it includes the idea of acknowledging guilt and personal responsibility. It includes the slaughter of pride, the despising of yourself, humility under correction, deep sorrow when we're wrong for what we've done, the renunciation of past sins. It means getting a new heart and a new spirit. No wonder in Ezekiel chapter 18 and in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, God talks about tearing out this heart of stone and placing in a heart of flesh. Holiness includes a pure heart. 
And holiness includes a renewed mind. And holiness includes a sincere faith. Or what the Bible calls in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, when Paul is writing to Timothy, faith unfeigned in the old King James. In the new King James, faith without hypocrisy. Holiness is a passion for God. It's not simply a reckless fascination with the supernatural or even a curiosity about religion. It's the idea that something's really terribly, horribly, awfully wrong inside of our hearts and that God is willing to fix it in the person of Jesus Christ. He is willing to love you and save you and cleanse you and wash you and then give you a specific ability to reattach to God himself and the promise of eternal life. And so in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 12, Peter says, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire and the elements will melt with fervent heat. In other words, we look for and live in the light of Christ's return. Holy and godly living frees the conscience and the mind to build an eager expectation in the heart. When are you least likely to have an eager expectation? It's when your mind and your conscience is filled with guilt. You feel guilty because of what you've done or what you failed to do. But this is what the Bible says, that God in Christ has forgiven you. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That we are chosen and adopted and accepted in the beloved. And that with forgiveness comes this mechanism of of freedom. That's the eager expectation. And I think that that's the key in this particular passage in verse 12. It's that simple word, looking. We are to watch, looking for, and hastening the coming of the day of God. The Greek word translated looking is very interesting. It's pros, dokonatus. Dokonatus is this expectation of waiting. And pros is a word that intensifies the eager expectation. As a matter of fact, It includes the idea of something being eagerly awaited, a highly anticipated event. It's like when you tell your kids, we're going to Disneyland. Something goes, the eyes start to light up. And the very first word out of their mouth is, when? They typically don't go, mom, dad, I'm not ready. There are unresolved issues in my life that I've got to get right before we, before we go to Disneyland. They never do that. There's a reason why it's called the happiest place on earth. You want to be there. And that's the idea. It's a highly anticipated event. And again, when we live in the world in which we live and we watch TV or we see movies and the movie man goes in the most exciting and anticipated event this year. 
And you go, this is the most exciting and anticipated event this year. In the most exciting and anticipated event this year, Justin Bieber will release his new album. And you go, what? What? Really? The world is anticipating what Kim Kardashian is eating for dinner, what Justin Bieber is singing, that's what the world is excited about. That's what they're locked into. That's what the focus of their life is. By the way, Luke uses the same word in talking about the people who were eager to hear what Zacharias had to say. You'll remember that an angel showed up and told him that his wife, his aged wife, Elizabeth, was going to have a baby. And he was struck dumb when he went into the temple to burn the incense and he couldn't talk. When you have had a vision from God that creates a mechanism whereby you can't even communicate, then people become highly anticipating of what's going to come out of his mouth. It was used again in the book of Acts chapter 3 verse 5 to describe the lame man who, when Peter and John are making their way to the temple, he can't walk and he has never walked. And the lame man looked. Same word. With eager anticipation. This is the kind of look that pleads. It's the look that a homeless person gives you. It's pleading eyes. Give me something to eat. Give me something to drink. That's the kind of look that he's talking about. This is the same word that's used in the book of Acts to describe the Italian soldier Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, verse 24, when he and his friends are anxiously waiting for Peter to show up. They're looking so that they can hear the gospel. That's what it's talking about. That's the kind of eager expectation that is expected from the believer. It's this hunger. It's this desire. It's this appetite. It's this zealous enthusiasm. And so no wonder, no wonder, no wonder we're excited about Bible prophecy. But it shouldn't be a wonder and an excitement that just gives us the factual information that never results in a transformation of our heart. Wow, do you realize that this is what's going on right now in Israel or in Egypt or in Iraq or Iran? Hey, guess what? A lot of things are happening. But note what Peter does. He, he doesn't just simply agree with the cosmologists and the scientists. Cosmologists and scientists have jumped on board the tragic train that finds themselves in complete agreement with the notion the universe is spinning and, and, and spinning down and that there's going to come a point when our sun is going to implode on itself. The earth is going to stop spinning. We might be sucked into some gigantic black hole or or something is going to happen that is going to result in the extinction of all human beings. But scientists and cosmologists say, hey, it's not going to happen for billions of years. And so you don't have to worry about it. Will the universe come to an end? Yeah, but billions of years from now. So, no problem. But Peter says, no. 
we agree with the secular scientist and the cosmologist that the universe is winding down, but for different reasons. This isn't scientific speculation or personal whimsy, but the fact that a real God is large and in charge from the beginning to the end, that this tragic end, as they would see it, is really a judgment that's going to take place. I want you to think for just a moment. Why doesn't Peter point us to the rapture? Why doesn't he talk about the future reign of the future king? Why does he talk about the ultimate end of the world? And clearly the scripture predicts the return of Jesus. I believe it predicts a seven year period marked by peace and then judgment and then the physical bodily return of Jesus, a millennial kingdom, a final rebellion, release and return of Satan to tempt and test a final generation. All of that happens before a fiery judgment. So why does Peter not Pasco does not collect $200, goes right to what he calls the day of God. I don't think it's because he's not excited about the rapture or the future kingdom. I think Peter is looking forward to a time when all sin and all suffering and all death is forever defeated, eliminated, eradicated. And the exhilaration of translation that comes when you live in a universe where sin is gone. And that's why he's talking about you. He's talking about your confident expectation and the way that you really live your life. Because if the ultimate goal is a final place where God's program and all the vestiges of sin and rebellion are gone. We look for and hasten that day. In what way do we hasten that day? So far by living a holy and godly life. Why? Because that's supposed to attract and in part persuade the unbeliever. Because the world is filled with belief and unbelief. The world is filled with people who know and love Jesus and those who do not know and love Jesus. And when you talk to them about forgiveness of sin, when you talk to them about that there's grace and mercy where the emptiness can be filled with something other than bitterness and anger and guilt. Imagine a world where you live where your heart is cleansed and washed. Imagine a world where you live and love because God has washed you and cleansed you and given you eternal life. This is supposed to attract and in part persuade the unbeliever. But there is nothing attractive or persuasive about most people's life if they see you. And they see you going through the trial and they see you going through the test. They see you going through the suffering. What is it about your life that would even for a moment cause the unbeliever to say, I want to be like you. I want to have the kind of hope that you have and I want to have the kind of love that you have and I want to have the kind of grace that you have and I want to have I want to have a heart like your heart. I want to have a heart that that sees Jesus. I want to have a heart that has the strength to conquer trial and test and temptation. I want to have hope for the future. I want to have assurance and confidence that I am going to live forever. I I want the conviction and purpose and meaning and significance and love and joy and forgiveness in my life. 
That's why. It isn't simply because that's your right and your inheritance. If that were the only reason, that would be good enough. But somehow your life, your thinking, your speaking should be so profoundly different that it causes men and women To look at you and say, that's what I want. We serve Jesus. We pray. Jesus said, when you pray, pray this way. Remember in Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, he says, when you pray, pray this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Somehow that transformation doesn't just simply result in a purity of life, but intentional service. Our witness and our work bring us closer to his coming as we serve Jesus with intention and diligence. We're participating in the fulfillment of prophecy. How? Because remember what Peter had said earlier. It's God's will that none perish, but all have eternal life. And there's somebody who's holding out on us. There's a person who's empty and lonely and dark. There's a person who hasn't come into a right relationship with God in Christ. I don't think that the Bible teaches that we convert the world through social or political action. Or that if we embrace some radical agenda of personal involvement, we're going to save the world from self-destruction. Clearly, we want to make the world a better place. We want freedom and justice. But the Bible, the Bible has no notion that sin will ever be eradicated through social action or political process. There's only one way for sin to go away. You have to place your confidence and trust in Jesus. Since this present world must perish, it reminds us that our lives should be marked by generosity. So our lives are to be marked by purity and generosity because everything is going to literally burn. And since the earth and the solar system and the universe are going to burn, we're left with a choice. The choice is we can place our trust and our confidence in the things that are temporal or we can place our trust and our confidence in the things that are eternal. We can live for pleasure and treasure here. Or we can live for pleasure and treasure In Christ, because there are pleasures and there are treasures that are found in having a right relationship with Jesus. Be honest. Where are you piling up your possessions? How are you living for Jesus? How are you embracing a course of diligence in abandoning sin and embracing God's plan? Of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul had the same idea when he wrote these words to Titus. In Titus chapter 2 verse 12. He said teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust. We should live soberly, 
righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Take my heart and form it. Take my mind, transform it. Take my will, conform it. You know what the song is? It's a song of worship. You notice what the song doesn't do? It doesn't say, make me stop doing this and make me stop doing that and make me stop saying this and make me stop saying that. You see, being a Christian doesn't consist in what you don't do. One person asked me, what can I do and still remain a Christian? Really, are you seriously going to ask me that? Are you seriously going to ask me where you draw the line before you can say this person is no longer in Christ? John says, he who has the son has life. And he who does not have the son does not have life. So we look for a new heaven and a new earth. Look at verse 13. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Whose promise is his promise? It is Jesus' promise. Where in the New Testament did he say there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth? In Matthew's gospel, remember, he said heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. How did he know that? Isaiah 66, 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein righteousness wills. How can you as Christians look forward to the end of the world? Because you know, number one, why there is an end. Because a planet and a universe corrupted by sin has to go away. Well, why does it have to go away? For the same reason that if you were having a barbecue in your backyard and a snake came underneath the fence and bit your baby and the toxins began to course through the baby's veins and swell up and die, that you killed the snake. Oh, but I'm a big believer in life for everyone. No, you wouldn't, you liar. You're going to kill the snake. Why are you going to kill the snake? Because the snake is a threat. So long as the snake is alive, it is a threat to everyone you love. And so long as sin exists, it is a threat. That's why sin has to be judged. That's why sin has to be eliminated. How can we look forward to the end of this world? Because we know that there's a new world coming. We know that there's a new heaven and a new earth. We know that this new heaven and this new earth is only for righteous people. And then when you examine your own heart and you realize that you're not righteous. That there's only one satisfying solution to the problem of sin. Now you understand why we keep telling you that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he loves you, that he died for you. God has plans for a world where there is no sin and no evil and no more accidents and no more disease and no more suffering. As a matter of fact, John in the book of Revelation calls this the land of no mores. 
not zamors, no mores. No more tears. No more sorrow. No more pain. No more death. No more drugs. No more disease. No more perversion. No more war. The Old Testament, the Old Pulpit Commentary has this note, which I love. St. John, like St. Peter, speaks of a new earth and tells us that the new earth will be the dwelling place of the blessed believer. He saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, the throne of God and of the Lamb. He tells us he shall be in it. The tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them. The holy city, Jerusalem, which is above in heaven now, but the heavens will come down to the earth. The throne of God and the Lamb will will be established upon the earth and there his servants will serve him, unquote. That's what it says. Who is right? So in verse 14, it says, therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace. Without spot and blameless. Now, think about this. Your attitude, eager expectation, your outward conduct, Intentional service, your internal clock, a peaceable spirit. Peter says, be diligent. Spodaste. It's reflexive. It means you make every effort. Look what it says to be found by him in peace. Diligent means eager, strive. It means motivated. If you ever see a, 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 a photographer Shooting a model. The photographer will go, okay, be sad. Be happy. Bring out tears. I can't just cry on the spot. What's my motivation? You reach inside of you to find the necessary energy. That's what he's saying. Be motivated. What will motivate you to prepare for the second coming of Jesus? He says, so that you can be found by him in peace. Now think about what's being said there. You will meet him. You will meet Jesus. You will meet him and you will either be found by him in peace or you won't be found by him in peace. Now, I want you to think about what this means. We have to be at peace with God and with each other. That's what he's talking about. We must not be living in rebellion against God or divided from our brothers and sisters. So when he comes back, will he find you in a state of rebellion? Or in a state of humility and submission? Will he find you in peace? Or will he have charges against you? Will you be ashamed at his coming, like it says in First John 2.28? Do you look forward to the judgment seat of Christ, which will be a time of careful examination and the presence or the absence of rewards? Your attitude? Eager expectation. Intentional service. A peaceable spirit. But now he talks about moral integrity without spot and blameless. Isn't that interesting? Because Peter's advice is intensely practical. How will you prepare for the coming of Christ? I will be expectant. 
I will be serving. There will be no charges against me. And I'm going to live my life in, in purity and moral integrity. By the way, Peter uses this phrase to describe the life and ministry of Jesus in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, when he calls Jesus as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. The word blameless, by the way, means free from fault and censure. It means to be above reproach or above rebuke. We're to live our lives free from fault, pure in our friendship and our fellowship and our conduct. No one should point a finger at you and accuse you of anything. We're clean. And that's the point. We're unpolluted. Pure before man. Pure before God. Paul writes it this way in Romans 16, 19. I would have you wise unto that which is good and simple or harmless concerning that which is evil. Here's what I want from you. I want you to be wise about doing what's right. And I want you to be naive about What's doing wrong in Philippians 2:15? It says that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. If your view of the end. Doesn't include living differently then your view is wrong. The theological checklist Peter compiles isn't premillennial dispensationalism. It seems to be personal purity, individual honesty, generosity. We live in a world that's smart and tainted by sin. We live in a world where the people are not, they are not, they are not looking for Jesus. They're looking at you. They're looking right at you. So, prepared, unprepared, mostly prepared. I jotted down a note for myself. How will you find me, O Lord? Apathetic, indifferent, or bored? How will you find me, O King? With fire burning in praise and offering? How will you find me, O Prince? Sweet prayers offered as incense? How will you find me, O Savior? In meek service? Or humble behavior? How will you find me? Ready? Not ready? Mostly ready? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray for that person who clearly is not ready even one bit. That their life is marked and marred by rebellion and disobedience. That if Jesus were to come right at this very moment, 
there wouldn't be apathy or indifference or boring. There would be the certain dread that life has not been lived in love and life has not been lived in longing. Heavenly Father, we know all of that can change. Lord, I pray for that person and I pray that they would put down their arms, that they would end the rebellion, that the striving would cease and that they would come to grips and realize that they're a sinner and that the satisfying solution to the problem of sin is Jesus Christ as Savior. And Heavenly Father, I pray that that by your Holy Spirit, Lord, you would give them the power to live for you and to love you and to serve you. And to begin an adventure. And for the person who's mostly ready. Lord, I pray that they would adopt an eager expectation. Intentional service. Generosity. Purity. And for the person who's completely ready. Lord, I pray that they would continue to love you and to serve you. I pray, Lord, that like John in the book of Revelation, when he would get up on the island of Patmos and say today. Maybe this day, my beloved will come. Lord, we know that we can look up. And see stars. Or we can look down. And see the mud. Lord, we pray that you would lift our countenance and cause us to love you and to long for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.